Heavenly Father, we give you praise and we give you thanks this evening. Uh, we thank you, Lord God, for your word. And as we open up your word this evening, please help us to hear you speak to us. Please encourage us. Uh, please challenge us. Uh, please point us to Jesus. Uh, and please make us more um, into, him, into his image, we pray. Because we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my number is also up on the screen there. Um, so if you are here this evening and if there's anything that's not clear in the sermon, uh, if there's any questions you might have, uh, please feel free to uh, send us through, uh, text us through a question, and we'll be happy to, um, to answer that at the end um, of the service. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, I got kicked out of a church. Uh, the church that I was going to decided to do a church plant, and they sent me along with a group of people to do a church plant. Uh, little did I know that the whole idea of doing the church plant was to get rid of all the people in the church that they didn't want. And so we were all sent together to this church plant, and three weeks later, the church pulled the plug and left me with this group of people. Meanwhile, uh, the pastor of the church that, away, that sent us out, uh, he started spreading the rumor around that I was a church splitter. Uh, and so um, around the denomination and all over Japan, I was known as Sam the Church Splitter. Uh, I had a friend who was in Hawaii. Uh, a friend came up to him in Hawaii and said, um, do you know Sam McGill? And the person says, how do you know Sam McGill? I said, oh, we've heard about him and how he splits churches in Japan. So my friend said, you will never, ever do ministry ever in Hawaii. Everybody knows you there. A couple of weeks later, uh, after the, the church split, um, I was single at the time, so I started dating Yoriko, who's now my wife, so we started dating. And that caused another church split because people in our church said, it's not fair that Sam loves someone more than he loves me. Duh, like I've got a girlfriend. Um, but one Sunday morning, I turned up at church and there was four of us at church. There was one couple, there was Yoriko and there was me, the four of us sitting for church on a Sunday morning. I was angry. I was disappointed. I couldn't stand Japanese pastors. I didn't want to be in Japan. I didn't understand, we couldn't understand what God was doing. I was tired. I was tired of all the defending myself and all the backbiting and all the church politics. And so I decided to run as far away from Japan as I could. So I bought a ticket uh, and I boarded a ship in Kobe in Japan and I headed to China. It took me three days. On the, it was the cheapest way to get off Japan. Three days on the boat. As we were leaving, as I was saying, sayonara to Japan. I was dancing in the boat because I was never going back to Japan. I'd had enough. And for those of you who have ever run because you're just tired, you're tired of life, tired of the situation that you're in, tired because sometimes you don't understand why God does the things that He does and you struggle to understand what God is doing. If you're here this evening and you're any of those things, then God has given us this passage this evening. Remember last week, um, Elijah, um, or, or more like God, he won an unprecedented victory against Team Baal. It was a blowout. It was a whitewash. 
And at the end of the chapter, we read that the power of God was on Elijah. And the power of God was so much on Elijah that he takes up his mantle, he takes up his robe, he tucks it under his belt, and he runs ahead of King Ahab. King Ahab's in a chariot, and there is Elijah running in front of the chariot. Ahab gets home, tells his wife Jezebel everything that's happened at Mount Carmel, and you can imagine the conversation, how the prophets of Baal failed, and how Baal himself didn't show up, how Elijah mocked the prophets, and then he set up a seemingly impossible scenario for God to make fire, but then how God showed up in power and in judgment, and the people, you know, they bowed down and they worshiped God. And then to top it all off, how Elijah seemed to orchestrate with God the torrential rain that, you know, for three and a half years there's been no rain, and suddenly there is torrential rain. Surely, this is the moment that Jezebel and Ahab, they joined the rest of Israel, and they bowed down and worshiped Yahweh. They bowed down and worshiped God. They recognized who He is, and they worship Him. But instead, Jezebel sends this message. She sends it to Elijah, and she says this, May the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them, those prophets that have been killed by this time tomorrow. You see, Jezebel is a reminder to all of us that just because someone has clear proof that God is real, it doesn't mean that they will always change. You know, think about all the miracles that Jesus did, all the miracles that Jesus performed, as He performed those miracles in front of religious leaders in His day. Think about John 9, you know, where, whenever there's the, the blind boy, you know, the, the kid who's been blind from birth, and he comes, and, and he comes before the religious leaders, and they don't believe that Jesus has healed him, and so they, they bring His parents as witnesses, and the parents testify, yes, this is our son, he's been blind since birth. And even though they have this tangible, visible sign, they don't believe it. They don't want to believe in Jesus. Think about the religious leaders in Acts 4. You know, there's a man, a beggar, who's sitting, can't, never, can't walk. He's sitting at the, at the temple gate. The disciples, you know, they heal him. The disciples are now standing before the religious leaders. And what do they say? They say, an obvious sign has been done through them, through the disciples, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it, is what they say. And then what do they do? They threaten the disciples to cover up the evidence of what's happened, and then they tell the disciples to stop talking about Jesus. I think about my own dad. My own dad used to say to me, Sam, if Jesus will just come into our living room right now, I will believe. And I used to say to my old man, Dad, if Jesus came down into our living room right now, you would say, Jesus, just one more time, and then I'll believe. Or I think about my Muslim friend who said that he understood in his head logically who Jesus was and what Jesus has done, but he could not trust in him because of the, in the cost that would be involved in trusting Jesus. What it would mean for him to deny his Islamic roots, that would just be too much. Even though in his head he understood Jesus, it was too shameful for him to believe and to trust in Jesus. And sometimes I think we can slip into thinking that if we can just say the right thing, or if we can just win the argument, then our friends and our family will believe. 
Jezebel reminds us that that isn't always the case. You see, the sad reality is people often love darkness more than the light. And we need God to open blind eyes. We need God to give sight. We need God to give people a spiritual heart transplant. Because without God's intervention, we are all as blind as Jezebel. When Elijah hears about Jezebel's plans to kill him, he does a bit of a speedy Gonzalez. You know, he gets out of there as quickly as possible. He runs for his life. He gets far away, as far away from Jezebel as he can, and as he does that, he dismisses his servant, and then he travels a day's journey into the wilderness, and there he sits under a tree, and he prays. He says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestor. Then he lies down and sleeps under the broom tree. In a strange way, you know, these words are an encouragement to me because even great people of faith like Elijah had bad days. He's seen God, remember, he's seen God do incredible things. Think about what Elijah has witnessed and experienced. He's seen miracles. He's, he's watched as the widow's son, you know, has been risen from the dead. He's witnessed as God has done the seemingly impossible on Mount Carmel. He's prayed for three years and six months that there will be no rain. Now he prays for rain and it rains. He seems to have God's ear. He seems to be so close to God's power, and yet he was also someone who got scared. He was also someone who got so sad and so depressed that he wanted to die. In our relational closeness to God, it doesn't always mean that there will be an absence of emotional pain or physical agony. I think sometimes we believe that the closer people get to God, the more peace they will have, you know, the, the more the, 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 there'll be less emotional pain, less agony. But those closest to God often suffer more because they choose to put themselves in places where they're going to be hounded they're going to be ridiculed, they're going to be oppressed and persecuted for their faith. They feel the drain, they feel the weariness of sin, they feel the power of evil that is all around them because they share in God's holy perspective of it. You know, think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, you know, with, with the drops of blood, you know, falling, a sweat kind of falling from his brow, or, or think about Jesus, you know, weeping over Jerusalem. Sometimes we will be tired of living in a world where it just seems that evil is always triumphing and where people just have no time for God. And sometimes that can just wear us down and make us tired. And notice how God deals with Elijah's anguish. He doesn't rebuke him for his weakness. He doesn't kind of come and say, come on, Put yourself together, Elijah. Come on, get back to the fight. Go hurry up and get back there. You know, stop being a slacker. In fact, God doesn't say anything. Instead, he sends an angel to Elijah, and the angel comes and touches him and tells him to get up and eat. And God provides Elijah, he provides him with replenishment. He gives him a loaf of bread, he gives him a jug of water, and, 
and he simply eats and he drinks and he then what does he do he just lies down and he sleeps and God lets him rest there's work to be done but God just lets him rest I remember a, a couple of years ago I was reading this book I I was really struggling in my prayer time because very often when I began to pray I'd always fall asleep you ever had that experience you know, I'm kind of getting down on my knees, I'm going to pray now, and, I'm like, and then I probably have the longest prayer I could ever have because I sleep for nine hours and say amen at the end of the nine hours. Have you ever had that experience? I um, was reading this book, and in the book it was talking about these, um, you know, these monks in eastern Romania, I think it was, and it was talking about how to stop themselves from falling asleep, they used to tie, you know, put barbed wire around their tummies so that whenever they started to pray, they kind of wake up because the barbed wire would shake them. And I was reading this book, and I was thinking, gee, that's a really good idea. I'm going to go down to Bunnings and get some barbed And then I realized, as I was reading the book, they were actually trying to use it as a terrible example of what not to do. Because there are times when God just wants us to rest. Times when He just wants us to sleep. You know, some of the best times, and everybody thinks, Sam, you're such a hypocrite. <laughs> And um, I actually said to Gary, Tom was in church this morning, I said, like, you know, Gary came into the kitchen tonight and said, Sam, rest, leave. <laughs> but God sometimes just wants us to rest. Some of the best prayer times I've had has been when I've fallen asleep. Some of the best sleeps that I've had has been when I've been praying as I've been sleeping. But sometimes God just wants us to rest. The angel of the Lord, he returns a second time, and this time with sustenance because of what is ahead. He's going on a journey. He isn't going to head back again to fight in Israel, but rather he's going to walk in the opposite direction to Mount Horeb, which is the mountain of God, which we know as being Mount Sinai. And there he goes into a man cave, is what Nick was telling us, and he, there he spends the night. And, you know, there, there's, there's these obvious parallels going on with Moses. You know, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai was the place where the covenant, you know, with God's covenant was first given, you know, to the people, where it was both given and it was broken at the same time. And twice in these verses, Elijah talks about how the people have abandoned their covenant with God. Moses, you know, he wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, Elijah has been wandering around for 40 days. Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain as Elijah, you know, has traveled um, to get to Mount Sinai. God passes by Elijah as he does with Moses. And I think these parallels are here just to show us that what is taking place in this mountain, it isn't just a story about how God comforts those who are depressed and sad, but rather I think it's showing us that something really significant, something incredibly significant is happening here in these verses. Suddenly, you know, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And know, some people, I think, think, you know, God's kind of rebuking Elijah here, but I don't think that's the case. God knows why Elijah's here. Rather, I think he's compassionately giving Elijah an opportunity to to cast his cares, to, to cast his burdens on God, to, to tell God how he's feeling. You know, back in the Garden of Eden, you know, whenever Adam and Eve, you know, whenever God spoke to Adam and Eve and after they had sinned and said, you know, where are you? What have you done? You know, God knew exactly where they are. 
God knew exactly what they had done, but He was giving them an opportunity to confess their sin to Him as an offer of grace, an offer, you know, an opportunity for them to answer wholeheartedly and honestly and to own up to what they had done. Instead, you know, they blamed one another, they blamed God, and Elijah, would he do the same thing? How does Elijah, how does he unburden himself to God? Well, he does that, you know, in verse 10, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Now, notice here what is ticking Elijah off. What is upsetting Elijah here? You know, Elijah isn't just sitting feeling sorry for himself and having a bit of a whinge towards God. He's upset for God's sake. He says, you know, the Israelites, you know, what does he say? They have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets. The people, you know, they have broken their covenant with God, and Elijah is really angry about it. And it, it begs us the question, what is riling us? What riles us? What gets us riled up? What do we get riled up about? I mean, do we ever get upset by the way the church sometimes abandons its commitment to God and to His Word? Do we get upset about that? Do we ever get upset about the state of the church? Do we, do we share Elijah's compassion and zeal for God's name and for God's honor? Is that a passion that we also are zealous for? Look at, look at God's response to Elijah's plea. He says, at that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. You know, a lot has been said about these verses, but I think at the heart of what's happening here is that God is teaching Elijah, he's teaching us, he's teaching us the church, that God is especially present, not in the dramatic or seemingly powerful, but rather God is present in his word. Note what it is that finally moves Elijah. What is it that causes him to, to cover his face? It's the afterglow of the soft whisper of the Word of God. You know, when I lived in Japan, have I ever told you I lived in Japan? Did I ever tell you? Um, when I, it's an ongoing joke in the office, but anyway, um, you know, when I lived in Japan, you know, a lot of Japanese Christians that I met, you know, they often wanted to show God to their friends. And they wanted to do that because, you know, in Japan, religion is something that's very tangible. It's something that you can, it's very visual. It's something that's very colorful, something that's very in your face, something that you can see and touch. You know, if you go and you see an idol, you can kind of go and you can see it and you can touch it. And so a lot of my Japanese Christian friends, they wanted the same thing. They wanted to be able to create that experience and say to their friends and to their neighbors and to their loved ones, look at God. Look, can you see God? Can you see Him? And so what often happened was is that a lot of my friends, either they'd, they would kind of bring people along to stuff like this, you know, things like Benny Hinn, you know, kind of these big crusades where people could come and they could see God. 
they could see God do something. People would fall over. People would kind of shake. People would kind of supposedly get healed. And then people thought if people can just see that and experience that, then they will believe. And I think sometimes we too often, you know, we hunger for that kind of a sign. We sometimes hunger for God to act powerfully, to show us that He is really there, that He really cares for us, that He is with us, that He can save us from our loved, for our loved ones, and He can save our loved ones. But in those moments, we can know for sure that God has already given us a sign. He has sent His Son, His eternal Word, into the world to save us. We know from John 1 verse 14 that the Word became flesh. Jesus, you know, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Therefore, we must remember that we will seldom find Jesus in the dramatic, in the wind, in the earthquake, in the fire, but we will always find Jesus. We will always find His presence, His care, His power in His Word. I was in uh, China. I got to a place called Tianjin in China. I traveled up to Beijing, and from Beijing, um, I traveled up to Inner Mongolia. There's me sitting in a yurt. Um, I was happy as Larry. I was as far away from Japan as what I could possibly be, and I was miserable. See, I was miserable because I wanted God to come down out of the sky and say, Sam, you were right, and those ones, they are all wrong. A friend of mine had given me a book, and it was one of those books, he gave me the book, and he wrote in the front of the book, Sam, I hope that this book can help you. And so I put the book in my backpack and I refused to read it because I thought this is a book where my friend's trying to tell me, Sam, you are wrong. And so I kind of, I, the whole time I was traveling through for two weeks, I kind of got there, got there and I said, I'm not going to read this. But I was so desperate that I started reading the book. And as I began to read the book and as I began to read it together with my Bible, I realized and I discovered that what causes misery in our lives is not what this leader has done to me, or what this church has done to me, or what this denomination has done to me. I'm not responsible for how people treat me, but I am responsible for how I respond within my own heart. And at the center of misery, the center of my own misery, it was the sin of bitterness and resentment an unforgiveness that was choking me, that was destroying me, that was inside my heart. That's what was making me miserable. I wasn't responsible for how people were treating me. I, I couldn't do anything to change that pastor's view and his opinion of me. But I could do something about what was happening in my own heart. So I was responsible for that. I was responsible for what was going on in my own heart. And so I bowed the knee I asked God to forgive me. I confessed my sin to Him and, he, and asked Him to change me. I hadn't realized it, but what I needed most was not a display of God's power to my enemies, 
But what I needed most was for God to intervene into my life and to speak His words into my life to break me, to convict me of my sin, to lead me to the cross to receive His grace and His forgiveness, and ultimately to give me life. And that's what God did. Through His intervention of His Word, it changed me. It made me leave Inner Mongolia. It made me travel back and get on that boat and, and took me back to Japan to serve again in Japan. In verse 13, God gives Elijah a second opportunity to cast his cares on him. He comes to him and asks him the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers in a similar way a second time. But notice this time, God answers. He doesn't answer with the full force of nature, but rather He answers with the full force of His powerful Word. Verses 15 to 17, we find there that God directs history. God's Word will cause the rise and fall of kings. It will bring an end to the northern kingdom of Israel. It will bring judgment upon God's people. And it will set apart Elisha as Elijah's successor. God's Word directs history. In verse 18, we also see that God promises to preserve a people for Himself, even in the midst of all the evil. Despite the fact that Jezebel and Ahab are still on the throne, God will still preserve a people for Himself, even in the midst of evil that is all around. God will do it. God reminds Elijah that he will not be alone. God's Word will do its work. You know, I love the story of a, a young Christian. He was saved from a, um, he's from a Muslim background, living in Central Asia. And he goes to the tomb of an ancient ruler, um, not unlike Jezebel, called Tamerlane. Tamerlane, he lived in the 14th century, and Tamerlane made it his goal to completely destroy and to snuff out Christianity. And so, at the time in which he was ruling, he killed 17 million people, which at that time was about 5% of the world's population. And even after Tamerlane, throughout Central Asia, subsequent leaders have tried to do the same thing. They've tried to snuff out Christianity. But in recent years, Christianity is making a comeback. And so this young Christian man with his cross necklace, you know, tucked under his shirt, he lines up to file past Tamerlane's tomb. And as he walks past, he leans over and he whispers as if old Tamerlane could hear, just wanted you to know we're back. God's Word directs history. God's Word will preserve a people for Himself, and He'll do that through the quiet power of the Word of God. Just one last story to wrap up this evening. A couple of years ago, I was uh, preaching at a church down in Melbourne, and after the service, you know, we were asking for some feedback from the people who came along, and so someone wrote on a piece of paper, this guy wrote on the piece of paper, Sam that was a complete waste of time. Stop wasting my time and wasting your time. This message that you preach, this Word of God that you preach is completely irrelevant. 
it's irrelevant to my life, it's irrelevant to the years that we're living in, you know, what a load of rubbish. Five days later, I got a knock at the door and it was this guy with his wife turned up at my front door. And I opened the door and he had tears streaming down his face. And I invited them in and I said, what happened? And he said, Sam, ever since that message that I heard at the church, he says, I can't stop crying. And every time I consider my sin, I can't, I start to cry. And it was so bad that I was driving to school. He's a school teacher. I was driving in my car to get to school. And as I was on my way to school, I had to pull over at the side of the road because as I was considering my sin, the tears were flowing down so much that I couldn't see the road. And I had to pull over. And he says, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just can't stop doing it. Could you please stop these tears? And then his wife that was with him said, I am so fed up because I am the one who was interested in Christianity. And it's unfair that it's happening to him before it happens to me. It's wrong. It's not right. And so both the husband and wife sat down in my office and I shared the gospel with them, told them about this message, which five days ago he deemed to be completely irrelevant. And that evening, both that husband and wife put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Three weeks later, it was Easter, we had a baptism, and husband and wife got baptized down at the beach at Mentone Beach. Such is the power, the quiet whisper power of the Word of God. And what happened at Mount Horeb, at Mount Sinai, it was significant. It showed how faithful God was and is to his people, even when they are faithless. And again, underlined the supreme place of God's word amongst his people. It's a word that promises to nourish us daily, to refresh us when we're tired, to give us sustenance for this week. Whatever's ahead of us this week, God's word promises to give us the nourishment and the sustenance that we need for the journey ahead. It has the power to topple empires, to dictate the path of history itself, and yet it also has the capacity to quietly change and transform even the hardest of hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Word of God is alive and active, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.